Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, the second part of uh, this new series we're in called Now What? A series on spiritual maturity. Uh, I used to live in Carpinteria for a few years before moving back here. I moved to Santa Barbara, moved to Carp, came back here. Uh, lived there for a few years before God saved me and rescued me and brought me back to the wonderful city of Santa Barbara. Um, but for a time, I was in exile. Uh, but if you've got to be in exile, it's not a bad place to be in exile. It's just not as good as Santa Barbara, I think. But uh, when I was there, there were, I remember in such a small town, you kind of get to know everybody, you know, that's walking around. There was this one particular guy that I, I kept seeing. He was really older fella who would just walk all over carp. And I, I was just like, gosh, I really wish I could sit down and just talk to that guy. It looks like he has some stories. But I could never catch up with him. He never drove. He never went like any particular place. He just walked all over town. Um, one day I came out of the store and he was sitting at a bus stop and he had, he had a, he fell in a, fallen asleep. And I, I walked up and I was like, there he is. I could like talk to him, but he's, he's sleeping. Now I don't know what to do. So I sat at the bus stop near him. He was, he was like taking a nap. So I just sat next to him and I was just kind of like, okay, <clears throat> just like start coughing, like anything to jostle him. Eventually he wakes up and he looks at me and he's a little, you know, surprised because I'm sitting right next to him. And I just start asking him everything. I introduce myself, uh, talk to him. I think his, his name was Larry and we just started talking. Turns out he's like in his mid-90s, mid-90s, went, uh, 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 fought in World War II, grew up in a Carpinteria, been there for like almost a century, and I just began to pull just these nuggets of truth from this guy. Just, what was it like here? You know, what did it, what did it look like? Uh, what did you do in the 12? What were the 30s like? You know, tell me all of this stuff. And then I just got deeper. I just went for the gold and just started asking the deepest questions I could think of uh, at the time, like, what is your deepest, darkest secret? You know, what is the worst thing you've ever done? Uh, what's the best thing you've ever done? Give me some, what should, if you could tell me three things, you know, that I could do, just everything I could imagine. I was sitting there next to this 90-something-year-old man who had seen a lot of things in life, had a few stories to tell, and had some wisdom to go with it. I remember coming away from that. He probably was glad I, I came away from that. <laughs> Uh, I might have been creeping him out, but I came away from it just being like, man, I just want to be like that, you know? I want to I w- I be deep like this guy is deep. And that's really the, the heart and the intention behind this series. Although not necessarily just with, with age, although that uh, matters for something, but really just the whole spiritual life, including everything that the Christian is. It's us thirsting in some way, in some sense, and asking ourselves, how do we go deep, right? We got our foot in the door, now what? Well, this is a series about going deep, and I hope, uh, hope after we get through it, you'll at least know um, at least the right direction that the Bible is leading us in, and you'll see the value of it. But we did an introduction last week that was largely what it was about, this call to follow Christ. Now we're going to go into specifically what that looks like day in and day out. I want to talk today uh, from Second Peter chapter 1 about character and its related sister virtue. So uh, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11. I'll just read the whole thing. It's just such a tightly knit passage. Flows together really well. A lot of stuff that uh, the Apostle Peter is, is, is 
getting into in here. I just want to get the sweep of it. As you're turning there, this is uh, Peter's last letter. He's in his old age as well. Um, although he's not, he's not about to die by natural causes, he's going he's gonna to be martyred, right? History tells us he was martyred uh, in the city of Rome under Emperor Nero. And this is his last letter. And it's to not his, his peers, John, Andrew, and those guys, uh, as when he was younger. But this is in his old age. He's now writing to a younger generation uh, people who did not see Christ the way that he did, they're just, they're just listening to his witness. And this, this is some of the, these are some of the last things that he leaves with that generation, and he is leaving with us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's a great paragraph. I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm going to end in verse 11. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue." and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother effect, uh, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, this morning, enable me to show from your word how sweet it is to love you, to love our Christ, to bear with him, to weep with him, and forever to rejoice with him. Teach us in all of these things how sweet it is to follow him as disciples, and I pray that as we endeavor to do so, as we, as we open up the scriptures, you would simultaneously burst upon the scene with a great vision, an exciting vision of what it looks like to live with you and for you. And I pray that also you would give us the power by the Holy Spirit to walk in that way. We pray that the kingdom of God, which you have already brought, you've already inaugurated, would open its gates wide in this little theater in Santa Barbara, that you would fill our hearts with joy, that we would leave today with song on our lips, with prayer in our hearts, and with our eyes fastened to our Messiah, saying, you are truly worth following. More than anything else in my life, you are worth following, and I'm gonna follow you till the day I die. I pray that you would do that in us today, God, and in me. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Perhaps... uh, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know, 
coming fresh out of uh, a series through the Sermon on the Mount with a lot of radical things that Jesus taught about in relation to the kingdom. Maybe you didn't go through that, but you came last week uh, and heard just the, the call to spiritual growth uh, and the effort and the, the, the uh, devotion involved in such a thing, and you're asking. Maybe it was even after, maybe it was after the Sermon on the Mount. You began to try to put certain things that Jesus taught in, into practice and learned that you uh, quickly failed, you know, in a matter of weeks. Maybe last week you heard this sermon from the scriptures on spiritual maturity. You got excited. You're like, yes, I can see that, how awesome that is, and the vision of it, and the kingdom, and all of that stuff, and I want to follow them. And then immediately you went out with the greatest of intentions, and Monday messed everything up. Maybe you tried again Tuesday, messed up. Maybe you tried again Wednesday, messed up. By the time you you're rolling around to the next Sunday, perhaps you feel battered and beaten and discouraged and disillusioned. It's not that you don't want it. It's that it seems so evasive. Do you ever feel like it's just so difficult to act rightly in the way that Jesus would if he were in your situation, in the moment as it presents itself? I'm not saying we have a problem opening up the Bible and finding it agreeable. I think the majority of the people in this building would would agree with everything that Jesus says, even if it's hard. We would say, yeah, you know, he's the Messiah, he's king, and he's Lord, and what he's saying, I, you know, I trust. But isn't it a completely different matter to put those things into practice? Does that ever cause you to to doubt yourself or to be confused? Like, my heart... I really do love the Lord. I just can't do any of the things that he says. And perhaps I, I, I can do it, you know, when I'm thinking about it. I have all the right intentions. But when the situation presents itself, when I get into a difficult situation, when I'm suffering or when uh, the occasion arises, I find myself, as Paul would say in Romans 7, doing the thing that I ought not do. And why is that? And it could take a a number of different ways. You know, the list is endless. But here's just some examples. Perhaps uh, you know what the scripture says about temperament and emotions. And you know that it says in Ephesians, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Specifically, do not sin in your anger, Paul says. And yet, when somebody cuts you off on the highway, you immediately get angry. You don't even have to think about it. If you had a, you know... 30 minutes to open up the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about what I'm about to do right now? Maybe it would be a totally different story. We don't even think about half the stuff that we do on a, you know, second by second, minute by minute. You just get angry. And then in the aftermath, you say, oh, man, why did I do that? Maybe you fail to love your uh, spouse or your children or your family members in, in, in the small, meaningful ways. Yeah, sure, you, you do the, the giant dates and you give the uh, huge gifts to one another, but in the minute-by-minute minute, uh, occasion as they arise, you, you fail to love that person in the small, meaningful ways. You wonder, why? Why is that? Perhaps your first reaction in any given situation is anything but noble. You would love to be that person of integrity, but when the opportunity arises for you to get yours, you grab it, and then afterwards you think, why did I do that? If the occasion arises to tell a little white lie and it gets you ahead in in life or in the game, you immediately do it without thinking about it. And the list goes on and on and on, and perhaps some of you are asking yourselves, why am I doing that? I do love God, 
Why don't I act like it in the situation as it presents itself? Where is this transformation that I keep hearing about in the scriptures? I don't seem to be transformed except in my heart, in my love for God, but not in my body, not in my behavior, not in my habits. Where is this disconnect? What is this deficiency from? If we were to start with the Apostle Peter, we would have to at least start in this place. There is no deficiency in God. Almost immediately, straight out the gate, we see that God has lavished his people with every single thing that they need to live like Jesus Christ. We can pull out at least two things. One is the power of the living God. Look at verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to what? To living life and to being godly. That is about as clear a statement as you could possibly make. Everything that you need, there's nothing lacking. The windows of heaven, the resources of the kingdom of God are all available to the people of God. Everything that you need for every situation that that arises or falls at your doorstep, it's right there. And yet it's not just right there like a carrot at the end of a stick that God is just dangling in front of you but that you can't actually have. But he actually promises that that power is made available to you. He goes on in verse four to say, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, listen to this, so that through those promises, verse four, we may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, Peter isn't saying if you do all of these right things, you will become, you know, a god just like God. You're going to become a small god or something. It's not this new age type of teaching. Rather, what he's speaking about is your, your inner uh, self, about your, your characteristics, who you are. It's an ethical type of statement that you will correctly or uh, vividly and perfectly reflect the glory and image of God as you were originally intended to do. That's why the reformers, instead of speaking of this as a kind of a deification, called it simply human, uh, human, humanization. You're simply being made fully human. You are disto- we're distorted by sin, we're marred in our original design, and Christ has this huge plan and this uh, uh, dream to make people the way that God originally intended, fully functioning in reflecting his glory. And we have not only the power by which to do it in God, but the promise that that actually is his design and is his desire, and he's going to do it. He's promised to do it. Having escaped from the corruption of the flesh. So let's just back up from just those few verses together and just summarize what we're being told already. Peter is saying, the hope that you would be, the hope of God is that you would become fully human as you were designed to be. Free from sin, free from the entanglements of that bondage in order to live the life of the kingdom as you were designed. Furthermore, God has the power to enable you to live that way and he's promised indeed to make that happen. Everything that is needed is available to the person whose faith is in Christ. Now perhaps our problem when we read this is, yes, I believe that, but I still lack the potency to realize it. I see the promises, 
I see the power, I see what the hope of, of, of God for humanity, but I cannot walk in it. I cannot access it. For some reason, there is this buffer between me and that, and I am lacking the potency to walk in it consistently. Why? And in our frustration, perhaps some of you fall into one of these two camps, but in our frustration at lacking the potency that we see in a follower of Christ, we do either one of two things. We fall towards a a rules-based mentality marked by legalism or more of an authentic camp, authenticity. Let me explain what I'm talking about and why both of them miss the point. Rules-based. You become rules-obsessed. You say, well, I keep failing in living a a, a life that uh, reflects God's glory. I keep messing up and all of this stuff, so what I need are more rules, right? God's already given me things that are right and uh, shown me things that are are ill, but I'm going to add to that. I'm going to make it more complicated. What I need is more parameters, more boundaries, more rules, more law. It's this sense of mind that says if you just follow all the right rules at all the right times, you will make it. And so for some of us, our lives are literally obsessed with finding what those seven rules are. And they still somehow seem to lack the potency that we would like to expect of the kingdom of God. And in our frustration, we take it out on other people and we impose our rules on other people. And then we turn into this happy, jolly mess. People are just all about rules, rules, rules. People get steamrolled, disillusioned even more, and we fall apart. But then there's a reaction to the rules, isn't there? No rules. No rules. It's that type of spontaneous spirit of freedom where we want to live unfettered. It, it stretches all the way back to the eight, uh, uh, 18th, uh, excuse me, the 18th century, the romantic period that came out as a reaction against the Enlightenment. Too much rationalism, too many rules, too many boundaries. Let's just throw off our fetters. Let's just do whatever is true for us. And this began to develop over the centuries, took on this other form, this buzzword authenticity. Not that it's bad per se, but it, it came to be used for just being true to yourself. Forget the rules, forget these outside things being imposed upon you, just be true to who you are, right? And so as a reaction to the laws and the regulations and the rules, there's, other, uh, there's a, a, another group of people who would just say, hey, to follow Jesus, you just need to not, like, just throw away the rules and just be true to yourself. And we even read some of these different camps into what it looks like to follow Christ, One person in the same theater might look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, you see, Jesus was all about the rules. In fact, he made them more intense. The Pharisees, you know, those bastions of rule keeping, they were all about, you know, not committing adultery and, you know, not killing other people and not doing this and taking oaths. Jesus actually went and made them even worse, they might say, or more intensified. It's it's far more intense than not committing adultery. You You need to not lust. And it's far, you, you can't just get into the kingdom of heaven by not killing anybody. Like, great for you, you didn't kill people today. Like, you actually need to not hate people. And so some people would read rules into the way of Jesus saying that he was all about the rules. So, you see that? And yet someone else can read the same Jesus and come up with the other camp. Say, no, Jesus was all about freeing us from the law. 
He was freeing us from the rules so that we could be true to ourselves, our most authentic person that we could self-actualize, be true to ourselves. And you have two people all trying to do the same thing. Answer the question, why is my life inconsistent with the kingdom of God? I want it. Why can't I live it? Here's why those two ways simply do not work. I'll talk about the rules obsession. One, Christianity can, simply cannot be boiled down to following the right set of rules. It can't even be boiled down to believing the right set of propositions. As if, if you get the right you know, 10 or 11 things to believe, you're in, the, you're, you're in for life. You're doing great. Everything's going to be a breeze. Now, it's certainly, and I don't, want to make it, I don't want us to misread this, but it, it certainly includes rules. We see plenty of those, if we want to call them that in the Bible, parameters, guidelines, covenant relationships that involve expectations. They're in the Bible, and it is important to believe the right things. If you don't believe the right things or know what to believe, uh, you'll believe anything. And so those are important things. What I'm arguing from the text is that they're not all that there is. And they're not the main thing that there is. Here's why rules aren't the only thing. Rules are helpful to point you in a a particular direction, right? But they have no power to help you go in that direction. They can aim you towards the goal, but they can't get you towards the goal. That's why Paul would say in Romans 7, hey, I'm so thankful, you know, the law told me not to covet, and if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know what coveting was. But then he goes on to say, but now that I know what it was, sin in me has taken the opportunity to just dismantle my life, and now all I want to do is covet. Is that the law's fault? No, it just pointed you in the right direction, and now you can't do it because you have no power to do so. Rules don't give you the power. They can only point. And they do point to something, but they themselves are not the point. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law, right? For all of those who are like, throw off the shackles of rules and let's just have a free-for-all. Actually, Jesus doesn't do that with the law. He says, I've not come to abolish it. I've come to give it its greatest meaning. So there's actually use for rules because they point to certain things. But they don't point out everything. It's been said that warning labels are developed whenever somebody does the unthinkable, right? There's no like one person with the job of just developing random warning labels for you know products and food stuff and uh, commodities. They usually come about because somebody did something really stupid. You know, like you have a bag of sugar in your kitchen, probably has no warning labels on it, but one of these days there's going to be a warning label on the next package of sugar. You says it says, "Hey, you know, uh, studies have shown that you should not pour this into your gas tank." Right. You'd be thinking, who in the, why is this even there? Because somebody did that. And they probably sued the sugar company, and now they've got a warning label on it. Warning labels only pop up because people do that thing that nobody thought they would do. There's not a warning label for every single situation that you're going to run into in life. 
Neither are there rules or instructions in the Bible that are specific to every situation in life. There are principles, but you're not going to get like, oh, who should I date? And where should I go to get my groceries? And, you know, should I, am I gluten-free? I'm not sure. Does the Bible tell me so? I'm not sure. Oh, what should I do today? Who should I marry? What job should I take? You know, so on and so forth. So much in there, uh, so much in our lives that the Bible doesn't specifically address. Rules have no power, they only point, and they still don't point out everything. They are in that sense like that little, uh, you ever rode those, uh, those theme parks, they have those little go-karts that kids can drive and you can go through a little, you know, a little uh, route, but there's this little rail in the middle of the cart to keep your kid from like driving off the side of the road, Right? Now, those things are fun, I guess, if you're a kid. Probably not for you or me, but those things are fun for kids because they have this sense that they're driving a car. What's not fun, and I know this from firsthand experience because I've driven these, and they're awesome, it's not fun to keep running into the guardrail. It actually slows you down and defeats the whole purpose. If we treat rules like that, you might start to notice a little frustration in your life when your whole life is centered around the guardrail. There's actually more to life than the guardrail. There's a journey, right? Christ is taking us on a journey. The rules are there to point us in the right way. But they're not everything. But neither can Christianity be boiled down to just living authentically, spontaneously, just being yourself. Here's the problem with that. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart, which is your true self, is, deceitfully, uh, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 21, actually that whole chapter, Paul goes in to say, here's what's truly wrong with the world is that people in the truest part of who they are refuse to recognize God. Paul says, although people knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, there you have an example of people, the human condition, knowing God but not honoring him, not thanking him, not looking to him, being futile in their thinking, and having their foolish hearts darkened, and they're authentic in all of those things. So you want to say to people whose condition is sin, be true to yourself? What if you are authentically angry all the time? What if you snap very quickly, and that's really how you are? Be true to yourself, man. We need more. And there is a point where both the rules and the authentic living will come together in a beautiful harmony, but it's when the person is changed. And when you're living authentically, you're living according to that renewed change in you. And the rules are there not to be obsessed with, but to point you towards a greater place to go. These ways don't work. The scriptures right in front of us offer a better way. Peter goes on to say, for this reason. What's this? He's referring to the power and the promises of the kingdom that are available. Because all of that, by the grace of God, has been lavished on God's people. For that reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Just think about that one for a second. Since everything you need in order to live, the life of the kingdom is available to you. The power and the promises 
and the hope of God is available to you, make every effort to engage. And the first thing, he throws out a list of things that are all connected like a golden chain, but the first one is virtue. Virtue. He goes on to say, we'll come back to what virtue is in a second, but goes on to say, if these qualities, virtue and all the rest that come after it, are yours and are increasing. So it's not this one-time event, but it's a, a continual pattern of your life. Notice he doesn't say if you're talented or you do great things for the Lord or you are charismatic or you read the Bible a lot or you attend church frequently like seven days a week or you do all of this stuff. He, he refers to certain qualities. He says if these are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of God. What was our original question? Why am I ineffective? We could put it that way. Why is my body not lining up with my heart? Why can't I do the things that I know are right? Perhaps you are being rendered ineffective and unfruitful because there is a lack of virtue. Goes on to say, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We could paraphrase this section to say, hey, you, you know you're growing if there's virtue involved and everything that comes out of it. You know you're not growing and not maturing. That's what we're talking about this series, if it's lacking. And it doesn't matter how much biblical knowledge you have. Doesn't it matter how many friends you have, how plugged in you, you are. Doesn't matter about your church attendance or what you give. There are so many good things, actually, that we can accumulate that don't matter in relation to this question. Peter says, virtue. Do you have that? And through that string, that golden chain, it ends with love. These are specific things. Very unique. Since virtue, and among other things that we'll get to as the series goes on, I I just want to plant ourselves right here on the word virtue. Since it's directly tied to our faith and, and spiritual development, we're probably asking the question, what is it? Maybe some of you cringe when I, I brought up the word virtue. It brings up you know, images of a Jane Austen novel or something, just some like bygone era full of you know, puritanical self-righteousness where you have to be proper all the time. Think of virtue in that way, perhaps. Maybe it, maybe it rubs you the wrong way. Maybe think of stuffy people. I don't know. But if we were to gather what we know of virtue from the scriptures, you'll, you'll see wherever it turns up, virtue is really just a type of character. So I want to talk about character too. After we talk about character, we can see the full depth of what virtue is, and I hope you'll want it after that. Character, in a nutshell, is who you are. It is who you actually are, out of which flow the things that you end up doing. It's not what you do. It's who you are, out of which flow the things that you automatically do. That's why you, you ever hear that phrase or someone says, that, that, man, that guy is a man of character, or that's a woman of character. What are they saying? They're not saying he did something once and I was really impressed by it, but they likely have observed that person's life and have noticed maybe that person kept doing the same thing over and over, maybe behind closed doors. Maybe they're just really truthful over and over and over. And that person, when we say a statement like that, he is a man or woman of character, we're saying that that person consistently does the right thing regardless of who's watching. 
So much so that it's revealing a certain amount of depth uh, to that person. That is a man or woman of character. There's some quality about the way of their uh, of life that reveals something deep on the inside. Now, character can be good or bad. You can have good or bad character. For example, if you're an angry person, you can tell yourself not to be angry as many times as you want. Rules. You can tell yourself, just be happy and authentic all you want. But when the moment comes, when you get cut off, when someone steals something from you, when you are betrayed, when someone disrespects you, what comes to the surface? We can say all we want, well, that's a bummer. I messed up. I didn't mean to do that. But that's not the biblical picture of what's going on. The biblical picture is that's, that's... that action is coming out of a deep place in us. That is a more authentic version of who we are than we possibly can imagine. When we react to things in anger without thinking, we are living out of a particular type of character. It's not just who you are. Character isn't just who you are. It's also who you're becoming. See, you act out of who you are, And out of who you are, you you begin to do certain things, you begin to form certain habits, you make certain decisions, and you keep doing those things, and those things begin to shape your character. It turns around in like a circle. Out of your character, you act, and your actions begin to further reinforce your character. So it's not just who you are, it's also who you're becoming. These things that we do, they begin to shape us. And so whenever a situation arises the ones that we're prepared for, but also the ones we're not prepared for. The endless list of things that happen to us throughout a given day that were unexpected. We will act according to our character in that, deepest, uh, in that given moment. And isn't that crazy? Just There are endless possible situations in life and you don't often have the time, let alone the wherewithal, to stop in the middle of a heated moment and you know, pull out your pocket New Testament and be like, stop for a moment. I know this is a heated argument, but I just need to read something real quick. Oh yeah, do not, do not argue. Oh, sorry, bro. You know, like it rarely ever works like that. It's rarely ever that convenient. We just react according to what's on the inside. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount spoke so often about the depths of the heart. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's not your mouth's fault. It's your heart's. That's why Jesus was all about the heart. He cared about the rules, but there was also more. He knew that if he could get to the heart, the rules would actually make sense. We've got to be prepared for situations before they even come. It's not going to do me any good to wait until that moment of crisis to then, you know, scatterbrainedly look through the Bible and pray for the first time. God help me! Nor is being true to myself a solution if I'm spiritually immature. (laughs) However, the Bible does present a picture of a type of person that I want so badly to be like. It's a type of person who is, after time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, able to act in any situation, even the ones they've never encountered before, out of the power and promises of God's kingdom because those things are deeply set into their character. That really is what virtue is all about. 
You can have good character and you can have bad character. Virtue is good character. It's not just good character. It's character that has been formed by God's kingdom. Virtue isn't something that you just do. Like, I can't just tell you, like, go out and do, do virtue, right? It's something that happens. It's something that comes about over long periods of time. It's something that happens when your character is formed and shaped by God's kingdom. Now, rules can only prepare us with special instructions for specific situations. But what about those that we don't have rules for? What about those moments of crisis and emotion that arise around us that the Bible doesn't directly address? And authenticity, it keeps you the same person that you are. It doesn't change you or prepare you. It just gives you the allowance to be who you are. But what if who you are is the type of person who's unprepared for the things that life throws at you? Virtue involves a different type of person, a heavenly person. In all of the various lists in the New Testament where virtue is involved, they all, there's a, a few places. There's Galatians, uh, there's where we are right now in Second Peter. Um, there's a place in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And they all happen to be in these giant lists. And those lists are kind of threaded together. And they're things like this, the fruit of the Spirit. Those are virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, Gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control, things like that. Then you get to where we are in Second Peter, and you see another list of virtues, and you find that some of the fruit of the Spirit are actually also in this list. Love is one of them, and some others. There's actually overlap in them. But there's also some new ones, steadfastness, godliness. You get to uh, for, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you see some new ones, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love, and you see this type of thing, and there's a different character to them. There's some other ones too, humility, uh, things like that that just kind of bubble up in the New Testament, specifically by the Apostle Paul who begins to develop it. And you, you notice one thing, I hope, is that they don't have that same flavor that a rule does. Humility, go be hum, uh, humble. I can tell you not to, you know, say something that is proud in a certain situation, but to tell you to be humble is an entirely different matter. Look at some of these things. They're not rules. Steadfastness, self-control, faith, hope, love. These are virtues. They're not rules. They're each describing a way of life. They're describing character and virtue. And in every list, they all happen to be linked together, assuming that if you're growing in one of them, you're growing in all of them. It is a particular kind of language come down from heaven for us to speak to one another and to the world. It's far more complex and deep and wonderful than a mere rule. Although we will keep the rules, so to speak, when we experience virtue and deep character, although this time it'll be not out of a sense of obligation and duty, but an inward character and love and delight. Back to the original question. Why is it so difficult to act in the moment the way that we want to act? See how Jesus lives, we want to reflect that, but when the crisis arises, we always or we often fail. What it seems like Peter is saying is that the reason is because 
we've been formed over time before getting to that point of crisis to act the way that you happen to act. In other words, it's not an accident. When you leave this building, you are going to make decisions and do certain things and make choices that are based on how you have shaped and formed yourself in the years prior. It's not an accident. The reason you act the way that you do is because you were formed to get to the place that you are right now. In a very loving way, it's our fault. But there's a way out of that. Virtue is being able to make the right choices at any time without having to necessarily think about it. N.T. Wright uh, wrote a magnificent book about Christian character and virtue called After You Believe, and he tells a story that I want to share with you um, that I hope will just make all of this, uh, give it a little more practical meat in a particular situation. He brings up an old story in 2009 of a, a, a particular airline and a pilot uh, it was a flight 1549, which was a regular U.S. airway trip from LaGuardia Airport. It was leaving the airport in New York, bound for Charlotte, North Carolina, 2009. The captain, his name was uh, Chesley Sullenberger, he was nicknamed Sully, was in the middle of doing all the usual checks, and everything at that particular point was fine. It was fine until two minutes after takeoff, the aircraft ran straight into a flock of Canada geese. Now, one goose in a jet engine would be very serious, but a whole flock in the jet engines would be disastrous. And, you know, airports play all sorts of tricks to try to prevent that type of thing from happening. But on occasion, Canada geese come into the engines. And in this particular event, it happened almost as soon as they took off. And at once, both engines were severely damaged and lost their power. And they found themselves in a particular predicament. Captain Sully... Makes me think of Mon- Monsters, Inc., sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Sully discovered in that moment that the plane was, uh, you know, at that plane, the, excuse me, at that point, the plane was headed north over the Bronx as both engines were crumbling and uh, destroyed. They were flying right over one of the most densely populated parts of the city. And Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to make several uh, major decisions instantly. They were going to save the lives not only of the people on the plane, but also on the ground. They could see one or two uh, airports in the distance, but they realized, no, we can't make it in time. We'll crash. And then they looked over on this side, and they saw, oh, there's a New Jersey turnpike, a big, long stretch of uh, road. But there were problems in all of those. They couldn't reach the airports. And even if they did land on the New Jersey turnpike, there were all sorts of complications. They would probably, uh, it probably wouldn't work out the way that they hoped, and they would take out a bunch of people in the process. That left for them one option, the Hudson River. It's difficult to crash land on water, so I'm told. One small mistake, catch the nose of the plane or maybe a wing in the water as you're going down, and the whole plane will start to tumble and flop around like a gymnast until it just begins to disintegrate and sink to the bottom. In the two or three minutes that these two had before landing, Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to do the following vital things. They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane could glide along as possible without, uh, without power. 
They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management systems. They had to activate the ditch system, which seals vents and valves to make the plane as waterproof as possible once it hit the water. Most important of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast left turn so that it could come down facing south, going with the flow of the river. And having already turned off the engines, they had to do all of this using only a battery-operated system and emergency generator. Then, if they were to do that, they had to then follow up by straightening the plane up from the tilt of that sharp left turn so that on landing, the plane would be exactly level from side to side. We can't touch the water before the rest of the fuselage. Finally, they had to get the nose back up again, but not too far up, you know, right there, and land straight and flat on the water. This, in addition to all the other tedious, ordinary things that a pilot has to do that the rest of us just wouldn't understand. And they had to do it in a minute. And they did. They land the plane. They got everyone off safely, and Captain Solenberger himself ended up walking up and down the aisle a couple times to check that everyone had escaped before himself leaving. Once in the life raft, along with the passengers, he actually did one better. He took off his shirt, and in the freezing January afternoon on the East Coast, he gave it to a passenger who was suffering in the cold. The story has been told and retold, getting people excited since 2009, specifically those in New York City, because just over seven years and four months after the horrible devastation of September 11th, 2001, New York now had an airplane story to celebrate. Now, notice that this was not a blind obsession to rules or a sp- just merely being true to oneself that took, that took a grip here on the scene. If I had been the pilot and I had been true to myself, we would have crashed. If I had been the pilot and I had taken the time to find the airplane manual to look up all the right things that I needed to do in that moment, we would have crashed. He somehow did what was needed to do in that moment. no. This is the type of person who had the ability, as Richard Foster would say, to do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. N.T. Wright would go on to say, explaining from that story, virtue in the strict sense is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right but which doesn't come naturally and then on the thousand and first time when it really matters they find that they do what's required automatically as we say. On that thousand and first occasion it does indeed look as if it just happens but reflection tells us that it doesn't just happen. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. It's the process of doing what you know Christ would do, even though it is uncomfortable and uh, 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 foreign at the time. You continue to do it and do it and do it and do it until it becomes second nature. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, verse 4, it is often in the difficulties of life that endurance produces character. It's doing that thing over and over, even when you don't want to, and even when it's hard, that character emerges. It's being able to make right choices without even thinking about it, because that is the type of person that you are. I don't want to simply be a person who just does the right rules, but has to look them up. I want to be the type of person who just is that way. 
Back to the original question. Why do I lack victory in my life over sin? Why do I lack victory in my life over even some of these small things in my life? Why do I feel so overcome by the struggles and barriers in life? Perhaps you feel that way this this morning. Maybe you have good intentions, but have quickly found that your good intentions have not done a whole lot to mature you and grow you and push you forward. Think of all the Christians who have fallen morally, yet had good intentions, really loved Jesus, but fell. Think of the disciples who really loved Jesus, who were his disciples, who wanted to follow, follow him. But in that moment of crisis, when he was standing, about to stand trial, all of them fled when it got difficult. I don't think, a, 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 I don't think any of them the day before would have said, that's probably what I'm going to end up doing. I think all of them would have said, we're in this to win this. Why did we not act according to what was in our heart? When Peter says, now make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, he's using this Greek word called epikorageo. Epikorageo. It's where we get the word uh, choreography or chorus. Think of the way to borrow this imagery Uh, you look at the end result of beautiful choreography where all of these pieces are working in harmony with one another, you just get the beautiful end result. Think of a chorus. It's not just one person singing, but it's many people singing, not to their own tune, but they have been tuned to one another, and there emerges not just a melody, but a beautiful harmony. Think of virtue as the ability over time to step into the harmony of God's kingdom where you have been living maybe off on your little catwalk by yourself wondering why is it so lonely and discouraging and confusing out here, Peter, the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is inviting you to step into the chorus of heaven. How do we do it? Well, virtue again, and I want to risk repeating this over and over so that we understand it, is the result of having practiced. You can't just do virtue. Just go do virtue. That doesn't work. It's the result of having practiced the way of Jesus so many times, thousand and one times, even though they're difficult and in the ordinary ways, to find that when a crisis arises or you're faced with a test or a decision to make, you you find that you reacted the way that you should, and this time it was automatic. It was second nature. That's why Peter is just so simple in his exhortation, his imperative. Supplement, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Step into the story of God and live it. This happens at the risk of being oversimplistic by putting on Jesus Christ, right? This is why, in the face of what we've been told, maybe by uh, Western cultural Christianity, that all you need to do is just have this mental assent to the right beliefs, be converted, and you're done. In the face of that is such a more potent call that we find in what Jesus actually said. He didn't say, be converted, get your foot in the door, and then you'll be fine for the rest of your life. He said, forsake your life and follow me. Can you see now? why there would be so much more power invested in something like that, so much more potency 
You're not just being converted, although that's important too. You are following Christ in a habit-building way of life where out of that emerges a type of life that is marked by character and virtue. You can't add virtue to your life. You follow Christ, and as you do it by the power of the Spirit, fruit will begin to emerge. We water, we plant, but God is the one who causes the growth. And one day, you'll wake up and find, maybe in the middle of a crisis, unbeknownst to yourself, because you've just been plodding along, being faithful to the Lord, that you did something, and you didn't even think about it. And it struck you as something that maybe Jesus might have done. And you go home, crawl into bed, because it's nighttime, and you rest with peace, knowing the power of God is available and actually works to save people who want to follow that type of life. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning as we transition into song. So much more I wanted to say. I ran out of time. Look at all this. It's like .9 font, too. It's like so small. It's like 20 things I wanted to tell you. I'll save it for the weeks to come. Because you're probably still asking, well, how? How do I start this, this, this trajectory towards deep character and virtue? You've seen the, the proverbial 95-year-old man on a street park bench in Carpinteria, and you see the, the, the depth of his life, and you say, how do I get that? There are a few things which we'll spend a few weeks talking about. Things like renewing the mind, actually developing habits, being involved in community, healing of the heart. There's a lot of things, little practical things we can talk about. I don't even want to go there just yet. As we worship, I want you to understand that this will not happen overnight, and that's okay. This is a life So as we hit the carpets, so to speak, and worship, as we lay before him, don't do that as a form of a quick fix. Hit the carpets, take communion, get prayer, hoping that you can waltz out of here a different person. What you can do is get a satiating, all-satisfying vision of the person who is able to change you the person who is able to indwell you and to transform you from the inside out. You can get a vision of him in a moment. I suggest we do that right now. We fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus, the one who is able to take broken things and fill them full of life, who is able to do it himself by himself suffering and dying at the hands of our broken desires, the one who conquered death with love and now sits at the right hand of the Father as Lord and Judge, Let's just spend a few minutes staring at him today. And who knows, you might leave this building with a captivating vision that has compelled you to say, I don't have all the answers to life, and I don't know what it's going to look like, and I don't even know what I'm doing right now, but that, that vision of life that I see in this Christ, that's what I want. And if you leave this building saying, that's what I want, you're, not, you're going in a good direction. Heavenly Father, as we sing to you and praise your name, as we pour the water of your Holy Spirit 
abroad into our hearts and as we plant the word of God as it is implanted in us, as Paul said, it eventually has to be you that causes fruit to grow. And I love that, Lord. I love that you've taken that out of our hands. That although there are certain things that we can do and ways that we can walk and directions we can go, ultimately the fruit has to come from heaven. I love that you take certain things out of our hands to remind us that we desperately need you. God, I pray on behalf of this church, my family, my brothers and sisters, my friends, that in some deep way today, you would begin to form us. You would begin the formation process. As we look to you, you would begin to change those deep, dark corners in our hearts that are fighting against your kingdom. You begin to open the drapes and let light shine in. The dark corners would be filled with fiery light. Our minds would be open, unshackled by the bondage that we have habitually been stuck in. And we'd be able to see you for the first time. And when we see you, I pray that we would see something alluring, captivating, transformative, and powerful. And I pray that maybe for the first time for some of us, we would start to notice in ourselves getting really hungry. Thank you that you promised. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. God, stir up a hunger in us today. In Jesus' name. Amen.